Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And I ask you to open to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. And I do want to give my appreciation to Dwayne, one of our elders who preached last week. It was an elder-led worship service. I'm thankful for the leadership of our elders as you know, I was in Lodgepole, Nebraska, preaching at their 20th anniversary. But I'm so thankful that we have qualified and gifted elders that can lead. And so thank you to Dwayne for preaching and our other elders for leading out in the worship service last week. I'm, I'm very thankful for our, our leaders. We live, and I don't have to tell you this, you know it. We live in a confusing, chaotic, and confrontational culture that stands opposed to the Christian faith. We live in a world of chaos, confusion. Just this past week, I heard a news story about a mother who reported that her one-year-old son communicated to them before he could even talk that he was transgender as a one-year-old. And so they've started the process of transitioning this infant who can't even speak yet because somehow he's been able to communicate that to his parents. We're faced with libraries all across the country that hold drag queen story hour for children. Many parents have told me over the past few years it's become very difficult to monitor, to watch television shows and programming geared towards children because things have gotten so out of control. What used to be trusted in a company like Disney, for example, has gone off the rails with getting involved in politics and trying to push a secular agenda. Our students leave for school. And they go off to college. They go off to university. And they're, they're taught atheism. They're taught unbiblical views of social justice and they're being told that evangelical Bible-believing Christians are the enemy and that we spew hatred and that we spew bigotry. And you've probably gotten into a heated discussion on Facebook or with a friend about biblical truth and, and it got really heated and what used to be a pretty good friendship is now strained and you're not sure exactly how to move forward in this discussion. We also have the threat of progressive Christianity that's just taking over no matter where you look. Abandoning the faith on key doctrinal truths like the reality of hell and Jesus being the only way. Just this past week, I was meeting with some pastors, and one of the pastors told his story. He was the executive pastor of one of the largest growing churches in Colorado at the time. About 15 years ago, it was the fastest growing church in Colorado. They made all the magazines. But he said the church started slowly getting soft on the truth. And so he left that church to go plant a church because he wanted to be more biblical. And after he left that church, the pastor has now embraced progressive Christianity. The church is now split, and that church does not even preach the gospel anymore. They're a false church. They're a progressive church. So we see chaos, we see confusion, we see confrontation all around us. Not just in the culture, but even in the church, among those who profess faith in Christ. And so that leads us to a question, how do we navigate these waters? How do we 
How do we move forward? How do you remain faithful to Christ? How do you embrace the gospel and not the spirit of the age? How do you live faithfully for God's truth? Well, we begin a new sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. Now you say, why 1 Timothy, Pastor Sean? Because it's a cool book and we need to study it. No, why 1 Timothy? Well, over the past year or so, our men's Monday morning Bible study has been going through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And as we've gone through 1 Timothy, it's generated a lot of discussion, a lot of teaching, and I just felt like it would be beneficial for the entire church to learn what we've learned this past year in the book of 1 Timothy. And so we're going to explore this over the next few months together. And so before you dive into a new book, you need to get your bearings straight. You need to get the background, the purpose, the setting, kind of need to get the overall theme. So we're just going to do an overview this morning, but we're going to do the introduction, the greeting. So I want to just read verses 1 and 2 this morning, and then I'm going to give you some background as to what this book's all about. So Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, what's the background to the writing of 1 Timothy? Right out of the gate, Paul says he's an apostle by the command of God. Now, what's an apostle? An apostle is someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but he, he was met by Christ on the road to Damascus. Jesus blinded him. And you go back to Acts chapter 9 and other places in Acts, Paul gives his testimony of how Jesus blinded him and then commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul is an apostle by the command of Christ. So what Paul is writing to Timothy is not his opinion. It is apostolic authority. It is God's truth from God's man, and not just Paul's opinion. He is writing to Timothy by the command of God. Now, the book of Acts records three missionary journeys that Paul and his companions traveled in going to different towns all throughout the known world at that time on these missionary journeys. And Paul here in verse 2 calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Now, Paul was not Timothy's physical father. He was his spiritual father in the faith. As a matter of fact, Timothy had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother and grandmother. We'll talk about that as we go on. But Timothy was from the town of Lystra. Lystra. And in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey, they go to the town of Lystra. Now, the Bible doesn't record this, but most scholars believe that since Timothy was from the town of Lystra, as a teenager, he heard the gospel preached, and that's when he became a Christian. It was under Paul's missionary journey to Lystra the first time, as a teenager. But then, in Paul's second missionary journey, 
he goes back to the town of Lystra, and that's when he actually recruits Timothy to become a traveling partner with him on these missionary journeys. So Acts chapter 16 records how Paul and Timothy meet each other. So Acts 16, 1 through 2, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul meets Timothy, picks him up, and Timothy becomes part of the the missionary team. And Paul would often write fondly about Timothy as his true son in the faith. 1 Corinthians 4.17 That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Timothy is the beloved son in the faith to Paul. Now, In Acts chapter 19 and 20, Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. Very important city in the Bible. You've got a whole book. The book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. So what do we know about Ephesus? Well, it was called the supreme metropolis of Asia. It's in modern-day Turkey. At the time that Paul was writing and and during his day, there was about 250,000 people in that city. Now, here's what you need to know about Ephesus. The major landmark was the Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis. She was a fertility goddess. She was the icon of sexual perversion. Her temple stretched bigger than the Acropolis. It was basically the main thing in that city. It was a place of wickedness. It was a place of temple prostitutes. It was a place of immorality, the Temple of Diana there in Ephesus. Now, there was also amphitheaters in Ephesus, where they would have sporting events. And these sporting events were very um, interesting, especially to the Jewish mindset, because the Greeks would compete without any clothes on out in public in these sporting events, which shocked the Jewish people. And then also, just to let you know, Ephesus was the major center of black magic and the occult. So you have a town that's known for sexual immorality, sporting events, Black magic, the occult, all of this type of wickedness in a major city. Now, this is eerily ironic to me because Ephesus sounds like any major city in America today. Now, we have our temples today, do we not? They're called sporting arenas and movie theaters, okay? (laughs) And we have our gods and goddesses, do we not? Athletes, movie stars, singers, the, the people in our culture that... That, that, that we bow down to in entertainment. And so Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And upon his departure to leave, to go on to where God had called him next, he gathers the elders of the church, the pastors of the church. And he gives a farewell sermon to them. And he warns them about what's going to happen when he leaves from the elders themselves which scares me half to death. But this isn't recorded to us in Acts 20, 28-31. Paul says to the elders in the town of Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care, and that word care means to shepherd or to pastor the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul frankly says to the elders, false teachers are going to arise out of this church, out of this group of elders. So be on guard. In the church in Ephesus, there would rise false teachers twisting the truth and bringing about heresy to try to lead the church astray. So Paul is in Macedonia when he writes 1 Timothy to Timothy. Where is Timothy? He is the pastor of the church in Ephesus the church that Paul spent three years planting and warned that heresy would arise. So Timothy is probably in his late 20s, early 30s, and he's considered young in that culture. Now, when I came to Emmanuel, I was 33 years old. Some people think I have a little bit of a baby face. I remember the first funeral that I did at Emmanuel. The people were shocked that I was the pastor. They thought I was a college student. So I showed up in my suit and tie getting ready to do the, the funeral. And the extended family like, are you the pastor? Yeah, I am. Have you ever done a funeral before? No, as a matter of fact, this is my first, but you've got to start sometime. And they were just shocked the whole time at how young I was. And I was only 33. So things don't change much. Timothy faced the same challenges of being a young pastor that a lot of people looked down on and said, what's this guy doing? He doesn't know what he's talking about. So what's the primary purpose of 1 Timothy? Why is Paul writing this? Biblically, we call this the occasion of the letter. What's the occasion? What's the the situation? What's going on that precipitates Paul to write the letter to Timothy? Well, we're going to look at this next week, but it's it's in verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then go to verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, you're going to have to fight a fight. It's a theological fight. It's a fight for unity. You're going to have to address these false teachers that are creeping into the church. They're causing disunity. They're causing chaos. You are going to have to address it. Now, I want you to turn to chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, because we will come back to this over and over and over again in the book of 1 Timothy, because this is the thesis of the entire book. Paul waits till kind of the middle of the book to give us the purpose so 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that. So Paul, why are you writing 1 Timothy? He tells us. I am writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says, Timothy, the church is a household. It's a family. 
And it's built on the pillar and buttress of truth. The pillar was the upright column that held a building together. The buttress was the foundation. And so you take these two images together. What Paul is saying to Timothy is the church needs to stand on the foundation of the truth, but it also needs to support and preach the truth. And so, Timothy, you need to make sure that the church is faithful to the gospel. So Timothy is the young pastor. And Paul is writing to him basically to do two things. Timothy, you need to address false teaching. You've got to deal with it. It is destroying the church. And number two, you've got to teach the church how to act as the church. So in other words, Timothy, you've got to protect the doctrinal purity of the church and the relational purity of the church. You've got to deal with doctrine and you've got to deal with relationships. Every church rises and falls on doctrine and relationships. Is there doctrinal theological unity? Is there relational unity in the church? So that's why Paul's writing to Timothy. And he's writing with an urgency, as we'll see next week. Now, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, those three books together, they're called the pastoral epistles. An epistle is just another word for letter, the pastoral letters. Now, why are they called the pastoral letters? Because they're written to pastors. Timothy was a pastor. Titus was a pastor. So there's three of Paul's letters that are written to pastors. They're called pastoral epistles. But they are not solely for pastors. I don't want you to think that this is just written to me. So I'm preaching to myself the next few months because it's a book to pastors. I want to show you why it's not written to pastors. Go to the very last verse. Go to the very last verse in 1 Timothy. Go to verse 21 of chapter 6. And you don't get this from your English translations, but you may have a footnote in your Bible that explains it. The very last verse, just that last phrase at the bottom, grace be with you. Now, who's Paul been writing to this entire time? Timothy. Grace be with you. You, plural. If you're from the South, y'all. You guys. Paul ends the letter saying, this is addressed not just to you, Timothy, as the pastor, but to you all. So we all, whether you're a pastor or not, need to hear the truths of 1 Timothy. And so 1 Timothy is going to address a lot of themes. So over the next few months that we're in this together, it's going to address a lot of themes. It's going to talk about the role of the Ten Commandments in exposing sin. It's going to show how ungodly the culture had become. Paul's going to give his testimony how God saved him by grace alone and this amazing grace that he's received. It's going to talk about the role of men in the church. How should men act in the church and in the home? What's the importance of prayer? What's the importance of sharing your faith? How do women act in the home and in the church? How do you train yourself for godliness in a culture that's against you? How should widows be treated? in a church how should pastors be treated in a church how should you choose your spiritual leaders how should elders be chosen how should deacons be chosen what are the qualifications of spiritual leaders how do you deal with false teaching how do you deal with division how do you deal with employer employee relationships how do you live out your faith on the job what does the bible say about money and possessions and materialism These are all the things that we're going to look at that 1 Timothy addresses. But ultimately, when you distill it all down, it it comes down to this fundamental question. How do you live faithfully for God's truth in a culture that's chaotic, confusing, and confrontational to the Christian faith?
So as we begin this letter, we need to ask the question, what does Timothy need as a young pastor? He's facing false teaching. He's facing a church that he's supposed to lead. What does he need? What, is, what, needs, what does Timothy need to undergird him as he pastors this church in Ephesus of all places, in this town of sexual immorality, of sorcery, of black magic, uh, of opposition? What does Timothy need? Well, let's ask the question more personally. What do we need? We don't live in Ephesus, but quote-unquote, we live in Ephesus. We live in a wicked culture. What do we need the most to be able to live for God's truth? And here's the answer Paul gives in his introduction. We need to rest in God's sovereign love for us in Christ. Now, that may sound counterintuitive. Perhaps you thought Paul would say, Timothy, get busy. He does in verse 3. But before he gets to verse 3, he gives us verses 1 and 2. And sometimes you can just skip over the greeting and say, okay, that's Paul to Timothy, da-da-da-da. Let's get on to the meat of what this book's really about. Let's get busy. But I want us to focus on how Paul starts the letter. Because Paul starts it purposefully with helping Timothy get his bearings straight to know what Timothy needs to face these pressures, what you and I need to face these pressures. So what I want us to do is explore three truths that are evident just from this brief introductory address. And these may sound elementary to you. Duh, Pastor Sean, I know these things. Well, you may know these things. But do these truths sink down into your soul and give you the strength that you need to face a culture that's chaotic and confusing and confrontational? Here's the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture. The Father, the Father is our Savior. And that may sound a little confusing, right? The Father is our Savior? I thought Jesus was our Savior. He's the second person of the Trinity that came in a body, born of a virgin, died on the cross, and rose again. He's our Savior. Yes, yes, and amen. But that's not what Paul says here. Notice what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior. He's talking about the Father there. This harkens back to Old Testament imagery. Remember, Timothy grew up understanding his Old Testament. His, his mother and grandmother were Jewish, so he understood his Old Testament. This goes back to how the Old Testament would describe God the Father. Psalm 65, 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. O God of our salvation. Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God our Savior. Now, we know from the New Testament that the Father Himself did not die on the cross because the Father doesn't have a body. He's invisible. He's spirit. He sent Jesus, but the Father is the source of our salvation. He's the foundation of our salvation. What does Mary say after Gabriel announces that she's going to have baby Jesus. In the Magnificat, Luke 1, 46-47, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Same exact wording there that Paul says, God, our Savior. We read this during our time for the children's catechism. Ephesians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God is our Savior. He's the source of our salvation. Old Testament, New Testament. Yes, Jesus is the one who died on the cross, but the source of it all comes from the Father who loves us and sent Jesus. He's our Savior. So that's the first thing that Paul wants Timothy to know. God our Savior. Well, here's the second thing. Jesus is our only hope. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now notice what Paul says. He doesn't say Jesus gives us hope, but Jesus is our hope. Now Jesus does give us hope, but oftentimes Jesus himself is said to be our hope. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is your hope. Now, the Greeks in the city of Ephesus, now remember, Timothy's the pastor of First Baptist Church, Ephesus. Just want to remind you. Maybe. I'm just joking there. First Church, Ephesus. The Greeks in that city were influenced by a Greek philosophy called Stoicism. Maybe you've heard of someone who's Stoic. A person who's Stoic doesn't show a lot of emotion. They kind of grit their teeth and bear it and kind of barrel through life and just hoping for the best. In that culture and in that philosophy, they just basically believed in random fate and that you just kind of got dealt a, a deck of cards that you got to deal with, and that you were being punished because the gods and goddesses were mad at you. So they lived with a lot of hopelessness. These gods and goddesses were punishing me. I just kind of have to deal with what I'm dealing with. It was stoicism. And also, because it was the, the home of black magic, there was a lot of superstition and a lot of occult. And so these people lived in fear. They would, they would give incantations and say magic spells to try to give them hope to try to deal with life. So I think Paul is being very specific to that culture by saying, listen, Timothy, you live in a city where there's no real hope. But Jesus is our hope. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You probably know some non-believers who have no hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Now what is hope? Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical hope is not some, well, I cross my fingers and hope things are going to turn out, but I'm really not sure, so I'm living on pins and needles and I'm dreading the future because I don't know what's going to happen. Biblical hope is never a dread of what lies ahead, but biblical hope is always a confidence in God's sovereignty that he's got it all worked out. And here it says, Jesus is our hope. Now, you may have walked into this room this morning and you're hopeless. Maybe you're facing something where you just, I don't, I don't have a lot of hope. 
And maybe it's just kind of weighed down upon you. And that's why earlier during our time of confession, you may not have known this, I want you to have hope today. I want to encourage you to rest in Jesus as your only hope. Listen to these words again. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Paul says, Timothy, before we even start getting down to business of what you need to do, you need to know that God is your Savior and Jesus is your hope. But then there's a third thing we see here. The Father and the Son, because both of them are mentioned here, the Father and the Son shower us with amazing love. Now, if you read all of Paul's letters, he, he normally starts his letters with this customary greeting. Paul, an apostle to Christ Jesus, to Timothy, and, and we want to get on to the meat of the letter. But notice here, Paul gives three expressions, grace, mercy, and peace. Normally, Paul would just say grace and, mer- grace and peace. First Timothy and Second Timothy are the only places he gives three. He adds mercy there that he doesn't add in any of his other writings. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's very unusual to have three. And it's very unusual to have the word mercy there. So we have to ask the question, why does Paul give three to Timothy when his customary is just grace and peace? Well, let's ask some questions about these three. What is grace? You may not know this, but... There's a word in the Greek language that sounds like grace, <clears throat> but it just means greetings. And the, the secular letters during Paul's day would start with greetings. Well, Paul takes that, letter, that, that word that sounds like greetings, and he changes it, and he creates a new word. He creates the biblical word grace. I guess when you write scripture, you can make up words. Paul takes it and makes it Christian. Instead of just, hey, greetings, Timothy, Paul is like, no, grace to you. Now, what is grace? Grace is God's free gift of salvation to hell-deserving sinners. Oftentimes we say it's God's grace to undeserving sinners. That's not necessarily true because undeserving makes it sound like you don't deserve anything. Undeserving, I, I don't deserve anything. Well, yes, you do deserve something. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's justice. So grace is not just, hey, you're neutral and don't deserve anything. It's no, you deserve hell and wrath, and I'm giving you grace upon grace. It's a free gift of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace. Now you can think of grace in two ways that the Bible uses it. First type of grace is God's saving grace. It's how God saved you by grace alone. It's when He raised you from spiritual life to spiritual death. His sovereign grace made you come alive. It's that saving grace that makes you a Christian. The second type of grace is sustaining grace. That's the same grace, but it's the grace that sustains you in the Christian life to live it out. Yes, you've been saved by grace at one point in time, but you still need sustaining grace to get through every moment of your life. Okay, what's mercy? 
Again, Paul adds mercy here. He doesn't do it only here. Here in First, here in First Timothy and Second Timothy are the only two places he adds mercy. Now, this word mercy means that God reaches down and helps those who are helpless, desperate, and pitiful. The best way I can think about this, this word mercy, how it's used in the Old Testament, we've known this word for many years here at Emmanuel. We're going to say it together, but don't spit on the person next to you. It's the word chesed. That Old Testament word chesed. God's covenant, steadfast, compassion for us. That's the closest thing. So when you go back to the Greek Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translate mercy as has said, the same word here. And so what it really means is warm affection or tender compassion. God reaches down to those who are desperately in need and gives tender compassion and help in time of need. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God being rich in mercy. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think Paul knows that this young pastor is desperate and helpless and maybe even clueless, and he needs mercy. He needs God's grace that saving and sustaining grace, but he also needs God to reach down like a loving father and just shower him with compassion. And that's what we need as well. You know why we need mercy? Please don't raise your hand, but if you're here today and you're helpless, clueless, and desperate, welcome to the club. We need it. And then peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, remember I said grace was kind of taken from the Greek word, greetings, Paul kind of changes it. Peace comes from the Old Testament concept of shalom, that Hebrew word shalom. Now, I've said this before, there are two types of peace in the Bible. There's peace with God. This is the objective peace to know that your sins have been forgiven. You've been justified freely by God's grace. You stand in a permanent position of being righteous before Him. You have peace with God and you are not guilty. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the peace with God. But there's also the peace of God. Because there is peace with God, you have the peace of God. Now this is more the feeling, the subjective sense that God is there with you. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's that peace that God gives us in the midst of, of trials. You know Philippians 4, 6-7, do not, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace. 
So Paul purposely starts with what God has done for us before he tells Timothy to start getting busy dealing with these false teachers. So before you can start, quote-unquote, living for Jesus, you need to be reminded of who you are in Christ and what God has done for you in the gospel. This position is our anchor. And these three words are not merely feelings God has for you, but these are objective realities that God has done for you based upon the finished work of Christ. They are truths. Now here's the beauty of these three words that should make you fall on your knees in humility. God was under no obligation to give you grace, mercy, and peace. He didn't have to show you grace. He could have given you what you deserved. Wrath. Hell. God did not have to give you mercy. He could have given you what you deserve. Eternal punishment. God didn't have to give you peace. He could have left you at war with himself and you would be cast into outer darkness as his enemy forever. But because the Father is our Savior and Jesus is our hope, God gives us grace, mercy, and peace. So when the culture gets more confusing, you need these as an anchor for your soul. When the culture gets more chaotic, you need these as an anchor for your soul. And when the culture gets more confrontational, you need these as an anchor for your soul. See, the only thing that will truly anchor your soul and make you immovable is not what you do for Jesus, but what he's done for you. The fact that he loves you and he gives you grace, mercy, and peace. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have showered you with, with sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, and sovereign peace. And so Timothy, as a young pastor, needs to hear this. When false teachers are infiltrating the church, he needs to hear this. He needs to know this. When, when he's trying to order the church and how the church is supposed to behave in this town of Ephesus that's crazy and chaotic and what a faithful, healthy church needs to look like, Timothy needs to hear this. And if he's going to promote the doctrinal unity and the relational unity of this church in Ephesus, Timothy needs to hear this. And this is what you and I need to hear as we live in a chaotic, confusing, confrontational culture. But let me just give you one warning. These these three things are only true for those who have realized that they're sinners separated from a holy God and they need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The only way you will know for sure if you have grace, mercy, and peace is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. These are not true for you if you don't have Christ as your Savior and Lord. They're not true for you. In other words, if Christ is not your Savior, if you haven't repented and believed in Jesus, you're still under His wrath and you don't have grace. You are still under condemnation and punishment and you don't have mercy. And you are an enemy of God and you don't have peace. And you need these three things. So my plea with you today is if you are not believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you see the gravity of what it means to not have these things? To not have grace, mercy, and peace? The opposite of those things are alienation, separation, punishment, 
condemnation and eternal hell. But if you trust in Jesus today, if you rest in Jesus, if you give your life to Christ, you will immediately get those three blessings flooding into your soul. You'll have grace, you'll have mercy, and you'll have peace with your God. So would you trust in Jesus today to receive from him these three wonderful truths? So as we begin 1 Timothy, we need to rest, rest in God's amazing love for us in Christ. And let these truths be an anchor for your soul to give you that assurance, to give you that security, to lead us to worship our great God for His wonderful gifts of sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, sovereign peace that you and I did not deserve that God chose to give us because He's our Savior and Jesus is our hope. That's what we need to hear as we go out into a world that's confrontational, a world that's crazy, a world that's chaotic. We need to have the gospel ringing in our ears of just how great God is and that no matter what we face out there, He is sovereign. He is in control. He loves us. We're in His grip. That's what Timothy needs to hear as he starts. And that's what we need to hear as we start. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's spend some time just praising Him for His grace, mercy, and peace. Would you go before the Lord this morning in a time of worship? Father, we are thankful that you are our Savior. Salvation's from the Lord. You have chosen us. You have redeemed us. You have sent your Son, Jesus, to die for us. You are our great Savior. And Jesus, you are our only hope. Lord, we live in a world that is hopeless. A world where people are anxious and they're fearful and they're discouraged Lord Jesus would they see you as their only hope and that Lord will we leave this place today every single one of us in this room knowing for certain that we do have grace mercy and peace that we've been recipients of those blessings because we've repented of our sins we've owned up to our sins and we've trusted in you Jesus as the only one that can save us and so Lord when we leave this place when we're bombarded by the chaos, when we're confronted with uh, confusion, and when we're having to deal with maybe confrontational things, may our anchor be you as our hope, you as our peace, you as our, our salvation. Help us to know that we are yours and nothing can separate us from your love that you are a huge, great, glorious God that can take care of all things. So Lord, give us confidence as we leave this place. Give us courage as we leave this place. But at the same time, give us compassion 
that we may always do things in love. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. And we thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you didn't have to shower us with these things, but you chose to anyway. And for that, we are grateful. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.